This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is June 16th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is George Thomas Musgrave III, known to a whole lot of folks as GTM3. I was a student at WVHC-FM from the fall of 1973 through my graduation in spring of 1977. And then I just kept coming back through about 1980 because I couldn't stay away. Mm. Uh, what kind of shows or what were the names of the programs that you worked on at WVHC? One of the first was a program called The Essence of Blackness, hosted by a gentleman by the name of James H. Daniel Jr. He called himself the Jazz Disciple. Uh, take us back to 1973-74, a renaissance of black pride in America, and Daniels hosted the show called The Essence of Blackness for the uh, local community, emphasizing black music, black thought, poetry, uh, news, uh, music happenings in the clubs. And Daniels kind of took me under his wing. I was an associate producer and newscaster on the show and occasional co-host. I did most of the evening music shows that we did. Uh, in my time, the show was called Changes, uh, pop, rock, folk, that kind of stuff. I hosted a show called Modern Classics, which had two sides to it. We would play new releases in classical music, uh, released by RCA Victor, Columbia Masterworks, none such. And then the other side, through my connection in the electronic music studio in the music department, I played a lot of avant-garde music, whether it was classics from the 50s and 60s through new releases and synthesizer music of the 70s. We had a, um, a, an artist uh, overview show. We called it Evening Performance. So we would uh, emphasize one artist per show, Quincy Jones, Stevie Wonder. I had a show on the Fifth Beatles. We had a live jazz show from a club restaurant about a quarter mile down the road on Hempstead Turnpike called Bill's Meadowbrook. And that show was simply called Downstairs. I engineered Hofstra concerts from the Playhouse, from the Hempstead Town concerts. And then the last note I have is in the summer of 80, I wasn't a student, but I kept coming back. And it was a show simply called The Rock and Roll Show, a precursor, if you will, to P5. The post-punk progressive pop party. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you were involved in, in just about everything that WVHC was doing in those days. Well, I tried to get whatever experience in media I could get my hands on, whether it was the radio station HTV and the TV production courses, or electronic music and recording studio technology. Uh, we had a four-track studio in the in the music studio, electronic music studio. So I was just trying to learn everything I could about anything in media at that time. Hmm. Um, can you tell me about any titles or management positions you had at WVHC? Well, I was a staff announcer, staff engineer, whether it was in the studio or remotes. And the remotes consisted of live concerts, uh, football and basketball games, including playoffs. We did freshman orientation at least three of the years I was there. So we were uh, we set up remotes in the student center. We had discos, and I engineered for them. 
I was an executive engineer. I was the record librarian. And for a time, I was the classical music director. Wow, that's a lot of positions. Um, did you have any nicknames on the air or did you just use your own name? I pretty much used my own name. And um, on the, on the uh, FCC log, you had to initial a lot of places. And I used my full initial GTM3. People noticed and that's what people called me. Hmm. Yes, I have to say, if there's if there's one famous signature in the history of Hofstra Radio, uh, I know many people have referenced GTM three. So uh, it's uh, you've left quite a, a mark in on history through the logs, I guess. I guess that was yes. Thank you. So, what first brought you to Hofstra Radio? So, nineteen seventy three freshman orientation, all the various. Um, um, fraternities, sororities, clubs, whatever, set up in the student center. And one of the rooms uh, was at WVHC Radio's FM. And I happened to walk in. Um, I remember Paul Geckelman was leading that freshman orientation. And it sounded like some fun way to, you know, waste whatever time I wasn't using in my... Um, math major and music minor. And uh, I just started coming down to the, to the little theater. Now, did you have an interest in radio beforehand? You mentioned music uh, as your minor and that you had you'd worked in the, the music department, but was, was radio something on your mind or TV? Not really, other than I was the geeky kid who had uh, a portable cassette recorder and would record TV themes off the television, uh, record music acts and comedy bits. So I was familiar with electronics. I listened to radio, loved to listen to radio. Um, going back to Music Radio 77 WABC, um, just starting to get into FM radio. And uh, we will talk about Music Radio 77, I'm sure, at some point. But mm. about working in radio, I don't think I'd given it a thought until freshman orientation. So uh, for those of us who weren't there at the time, could you describe what the station was like underneath the little theater? If you could give us a sense of, of what you walked into and, and what was going on at the time. So... Mason Hall was close to the administration building, and at the far end of it were a set of stairs going down to this basement area. You walked in, there was like a, a waiting room in front, turn left, a little corridor, and then there's a little room on the left that had the classical records. The main control room was all the way down the hallway. And on the right was Studio A, the main studio for broadcasting. And on the left, Studio B, let's say there was an announcer on duty or they could do a little bit of production in there while we were on the air. Um, an old Gates diplomat console, rotary knobs, 10 inputs, microphones, two turntables, two tape machines, a cart machine to play 
commercials, jingles, public service announcements, etc. In the back of Studio A were all the albums against the wall, alphabetically, by artist. Um, usually there were one or two people on duty. Uh, if the announcer did not engineer for themselves, you'd have the announcer in Studio A and an engineer in Studio B. The announcer would, would tell the engineer, give them the, the album, say, play cut number three. The engineer would cue it up. The last song would end. The announcer would call for the mic. They'd, what we say is back sell. That was Linda Ronstadt with Living in the USA. And now a little bit of Bruce Springsteen. The announcer would point at the engineer and the engineer would start the record. Uh, that was that was a great description. I've heard a few uh, descriptions, but but you you brought in a lot of detail there. I think one of the things that perhaps is is also useful is that this was not a big space. This was not, not a spacious studio. Not at all. Um, it's hard for me to judge. I'd say Studio A was maybe eight foot by eight foot, ten by ten, something like that. Uh, same for the control room. The announce booth was maybe six by six, low ceiling, no back exit from the facilities. So that mm -hmm. staircase you went down to get in is your only way out. Uh, at times officially designated as a fire trap. <laughs> It's it, in retrospect. I, I think we can we can laugh, but it's it's that's yeah. uh, it's quite uh, alarming that that it was all these all these kids and and all this equipment packed into that little space, and there's only one way in and one way out. Exactly. But I, I imagine at the time that that danger didn't really affect you. You just kept coming down and having fun. Exactly. Okay. Uh, we we were doing what we wanted to do, and. Um, you know, I guess Jeffrey Krause knew of the potential dangers, and I, I wouldn't say he laughed it off, but he also accepted it as the price to pay at that point in time. Okay, so you go to this uh, this open house, this uh, or the the orientation. How did you get involved at the station? Were there training classes? Did they sit you down and and explain the FCC rules? What what happened to get you started there? There were classes in announcing. There were classes in engineering. Basically, the chief announcer, chief engineer, or executive engineer, would schedule um, time for the newbies to come in and go over the rules that were pertinent as far as the FCC, how the Gates diplomat worked, um, what it meant to be an announcer and, you know, even simple rules as show up 15 minutes before your shift, clean up the control room when you're done. Um, at some point, I'm going to publish on the Facebook page, I found Rick Walshevsky's rules for announcers from when he was chief, en chief announcer in about 1980. Um, I also uncovered Jeff Krause's copy of the training manual for uh, for the uh, engineers for the for the Gates diplomat. 
Uh, I'll scan some pages of that. Basically, uh, each one teach one. Um, you set up the classes, you'd give them the rules, and then they would be assigned a shift to watch someone else do it and learn from watching and then switch chairs. Now you're doing it with the more experienced person behind you to guide you and uh, tell you not to pick up that tone arm because that's the one on the air right now. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's that's the wonderful thing about the medium of radio. It it happens, and you got to keep going. It's gone. Yep, it's it's out there into the ether. Um, do you and remember? Then one, and then one other thing. Mm -hmm. In order to take readings on the transmitter, we had a remote panel that controlled the transmitter, and we had to take readings every hour or two. And in order to do that, at the time you needed a license from the Federal Communications Commission. It was called an FCC third class license with broadcast endorsement. And basically you had to go into New York City onto Varick Street to the FCC headquarters and take a little 20 question test on basic rules and, and procedures. It was, it was a nothing test and pretty much everyone passed. And then they mailed you this little blue license in the mail and you could sign on to the, uh, to the engineering log. I, I think according to some other stories that the, your FCC license would be kept in, in like a, a picture frame in the hallway, is that right? I don't recall if it was a picture frame in the hall. It sounds familiar. I, when you first started, I was thinking it was in a in a loosely book in plastic, but it might have been in the hallway. Okay, well, d depending on on the time and and the and the place and the story, uh, it could yeah. have been a little bit different. But um, when I got my FCC license in the 1990s, we were told to to keep it with us and and keep it, uh, you know, if you're going to do a shift. But that's that's getting off track. Um, do you remember getting on the air for the first time, whether it was announcing or engineering? And if you don't remember the exact first time, do you remember what it was like getting on the air for the first time, how you might have felt about it? I remember one of my one of my first experiences um, on the essence of blackness. Um, James H. Daniel would tell me to pick up the Amsterdam News which at the time was a black-oriented newspaper published in Harlem. And I would probably pick it up on my way to the Long Island Railroad to come from my home in Brooklyn out to the station. And I'd go through it, and basically it was a newspaper form of what we called rip and read, where you would take the main stories, you'd rewrite them, and then you'd announce them on the air. So I do two or three or four stories from the headlines of the week. And then I go to the back and look at the jazz club listings for Greenwich Village or Harlem. And like McCoy Tyner's appearing at the Blue Note mm -hmm. and do about four or five or six different club listings. And that was probably among my first announcing duties on the air. Do you remember a feeling of excitement? Were you nervous getting on the air or, or working behind the scenes? Or it, it seems like it was a pretty polished show and 
you had a specific thing you needed to do? I was probably scared out of my pants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I it, it was it was brand spanking new to me, and I was fluffing my way through. Um, I was never really good at reading copy cold. I was never good at reading copy cold. I got better if I practiced it two or three or four times before we went on the air. And I slogged my way through. But I was nervous as all get out. Mm. Mm. So how long do you think it felt you to get comfortable being on the air or being behind the board? Um... I would roughly say about a year, whether it was announcing or engineering. Um, it just takes took me a while to really feel comfortable. And then with everything that you're adding in, that ups the level, whether it was going from just announcing or just engineering to combo where you were doing both. Um, at this point, I have to throw in one story and one name that helped me in engineering, and that name is Swede Olson. Mm-hmm. Swede Olson was by far the most popular show personality that we had. He had a show of polkas and obericks that aired, I believe, Sundays when I was there. And when you engineered for Swede, he'd hand you a pile of about 10 or 15 records, a list of the song titles. The records he handed you were a combination of 45s, albums, and 78s. Oh, my. If you played a 78, you had to put in a special needle. So you took out the regular needle and put in the 78 needle because the grooves on the record were wider. And the thing about all the songs that he gave you, they were two minutes long, they ended cold, and he talked between each one. Wow. So give him a mic, start the record, close his mic, cue up the next song. You had it two minutes. That song would end, dun, 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 dun. open the mic, Swede would talk, he talked for 10 seconds, he pointed you, you'd play the next mic, the next record. That's where you learn how to queue up, how to communicate with your announcer, with your host. And it was the best engineer training that I ever received. And I used that engineering training throughout my whole professional radio career. I, I, I'm sweating just thinking about it. <laughs> just the, 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 pre, the uh, thinking about the first or second time going through that and you're, you're moving and changing the, the, the needle. Oh my goodness. And then uh, obviously with 45, sometimes you have an adapter. Sometimes you don't, you have to change the speed on the turntable and there's just two turntables in the studio. I assume. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And, and the, and the best thing of course is the fact that if you made a, when you made a mistake, Sweet didn't really care. The audience didn't really care. You cared. You right. cared immensely. You thought about that mistake for the next month. But the audience didn't care, and Sweet didn't care. And you, all you could do was get better at it. Wow. 
Wow, that's that's intense. But that's like you said, that's something that you'll carry with you. You've got those those skills and that ability to think on your feet forever. Yep. Wow. Because when I worked at WPLJ, it was turntables. Now, of course, the records were five and six and seven minutes long, and the disc jockey didn't speak between every song, but you had those skills. I had those skills. Right, and if something does go wrong, you're able to think on your feet and deal with it. Exactly. Wow. Wow, that's, that's intense. I'm still feeling that. Um, so, so, so getting comfortable on the air, and again, because you're not a, a broadcast or communications major, you're, I think you said math. Right. So I came into Hofstra as a math major and a music minor. And I was taking calculus courses and then going down to the radio station nights and weekends. And everything was cool, hip and happening. I got a B in my first calculus course. I got a D in my second calculus course. Uh-oh. You can't get a D in your major. Yeah. I got a B. I got an A in the third calculus course because the, the final was a take-home and we all chatted amongst ourselves. <laughs> but by the fourth semester, I could see math was not going to be my major anymore. And I discovered the HTV Hofstra Television Studios. And that combined with WVHC, I found myself a communication arts major. And that's what my degree is in. Okay. So were you, uh, we talked about being comfortable on the air. When did you feel comfortable at the station and, and socially with the, with the crew that was there, which I, I'm going to guess was somewhere in like the 30 to 40 person range? Uh, if I'm if I'm guessing correctly, when do you? It's, it sounds like right away you found people who were willing to help you and show you the way. But uh, but was there a moment, or was it just a general feeling of I belong here? This is great. I think it was just a general feeling. Um, you know, there there weren't so much old timers as people who had started a year or two or three before I did. And they would welcome you in. Um, and then there was the annual um, dinner, uh, the, the staff dinner. And you'd see even older timers there who came and had their stories. So uh, it, it was a little, it was a, a nice little club that we all belonged to. And everyone was there for the purpose of making good air, as it were. So there were no, there weren't that many, there weren't bad apples or anything like that. It was just a nice club. Hmm. I love that phrase, making good air. Yeah, yeah, that just just came out. I don't know where that came from. I like like it. I'm going to steal that. Um, So obviously Hofstra Radio meant a lot to you because as you said before, you graduated and you kept coming back. So obviously it's important to you. But, and, and we're having this conversation all these years later, but I'm going to ask if at all possible to go back and put yourself in your shoes at, at 18 and you're at that freshman orientation and you discover this radio station and you're obviously intrigued, but if you could, what were you thinking at that time? What did you hope Hofstra Radio would mean to you? Um, point of clarification, I actually arrived at 
uh, Hofstra at the age of 16. I, oh. I, had skipped, I had skipped a couple of grades before that. So I was, I was just a youngin, which wasn't unusual at that station. We had some folks who were high school students who came into our studios and, and learned and played. And one of them um, is a guy named Lee Harris, who's a morning anchor on 1010 Winds. Right. Um, I didn't, again, I wasn't, when I first arrived, freshman, I wasn't thinking of a career. I was just thinking, this is a nice way to have fun, waste some time, uh, distract me from my, from my math studies. Um, yeah, it was, it was a fun way to spend an afternoon or an evening. Well, it sounds like mission accomplished on distracting you from the from the calculus class. Yeah, certainly, <laughs> uh, just 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 having fun. Uh, no real thoughts of a career in it. Maybe that started to come along after a while, but not certainly not at first. Hmm. So, so the expectation was, let's try this out. Let's just do something for fun, and it obviously it seems like it became something so much more. Exactly. George, these these stories are, are are wonderful, and and I'm I'm so glad to hear them, and uh, really grateful that you took the time to share them. Um, I know that you have more stories, and I'm working on more questions, and I would really love to do this again sometime. Uh, anytime, I'm I'm available for it.